What's happening, y'all? Welcome inside the Fantasy Stock Exchange. Danny and Bush coming at you today to recap some of the lessons that we learned, some of the mistakes that we made in 2021 fantasy football, and we're going to apply it to guys this year and some of their outlooks. So if you guys recall, we did a video right after the season in January or so, breaking down five things that we got wrong and the players that we learned those lessons from and five things that we got right and the players that we learned those lessons from. And today we're going to review those cases and lessons because what we're thinking and reflecting right after the season is often different after we get, you know, six months into the off season. I feel like after the season, we have a lot of clarity. It's a more matter of fact way. This guy felt like he was a terrible pick. That guy felt like he was a great pick. As we go through the off season, we like overanalyze things. We forget the bottom line of how these players actually were for your fantasy team during the season. So what we're doing in today's video is reviewing those lessons so that we make certain that we do not make those mistakes again or make certain that we do make the things uh, that got us to the the hits that we had again. So um, that was a lot of mumbo jumbo. But Danny, how you doing today? Doing well, doing well. And yeah, you guys would have seen the first recap that we did of the past season over in what, January, I think we put out the first video. So yeah. this one is going to be a lot of fun because based off those lessons, as you said, we're finding those archetypes. We're finding those profiles this year that compare relatively similar to some of the best cases that we were high on last year and ultimately some of the biggest mistakes, as you said, that we were low on last year. But I'm good. I'm ready to roll. But before we get into the first case, as always... We're going to hit the intro. All right, Corey, start us off. First case of the video. Take it away. Yeah, and uh, this one, it, this was a hit for us, and it was the biggest hit in all of fantasy if people hit on this guy. So it's good that we hit on this guy, which was Jonathan Taylor. In our draft guide last year, I wrote him up as the biggest league-winning running back in fantasy football, and the roadmap that I broke down for Jonathan Taylor in the What Makes a League-Winning Running Back video series, and I did that series this past July on the channel for each position, if you guys want to go check that out. The, the roadmap for Jonathan Taylor that I broke down last year was his path to elite volume and elite you know, season was a lot of carries, a lot of rushing touchdowns. And we had concerns about Naeem Hines being more involved. But at FSE, we trusted the second year running back who just finished his rookie season really, really strong to gain more opportunities, gain the, the trust of his coaching staff. And Jonathan Taylor went from a 52.8% opportunity share as a rookie to a 71% opportunity share as a second year running back because of that philosophy that we kind of adopted throughout years of making mistakes and, you know, learning that uh, in years of fantasy. So the reason that coaches don't typically trust rookies is because they have a lot of mistakes that they're making. We saw that with Jonathan Taylor. He had bad fumble games and stuff in his rookie season. And his second year, he cleaned up those things and he earned the trust of his coaching staff. So in 2022, some of the biggest examples that we could think of, the biggest example is Javante Williams, because number one, he's a second year running back who got better as the season went along. He also has a talented veteran in the backfield, just like Hines was for Jonathan Taylor last year. And his path is a little bit different than Jonathan Taylor's if he does hit like an elite season because he has a little bit more receiving upside than Jonathan Taylor had, but he probably has less carry and less touchdown potential. But the philosophy is this. An uber-talented rookie running back gained the trust of his coaching staff as the season went along, captured a larger share of the backfield, not 100% share. Jonathan Taylor wasn't getting every touch in the Colts' backfield, a 71% share. So it was a 70-30 split for Jonathan Taylor and Naeem Hines last year. I feel like people don't think it was that you know, skewed in terms of how much Naeem Hines was getting, which was enough for the RB1 on the season. So 
the case for Javante Williams is basically that he jumps from like a 50% opportunity share to a 65, 70% opportunity share. Now in an improved offense with a receiving workload, we saw him capture that role down the stretch of the season. He could be this year's Jonathan Taylor if we kind of base that analysis that we broke down for Taylor last year. Yeah, and I mean, it's so funny because projection Twitter is going to be off of, you know, Javante Williams going to mention the name of Melvin Gordon. But as we know, uh, contextually, down the stretch last year, post bye week, as, you know, Hayden Winks likes to coin it, the rookie bump that we usually see at the running back position, Javante Williams genuinely saw a big uptick in terms of his usage. 14.99 PPR points per game down the stretch, which across the season would have been the RB15, and 17.7 opportunities down the stretch. Are we really thinking that workload is going to go down or stay the same on what should be a prime improvement type of offense this year with the addition of Russell Wilson, as you kind of said? Javante Williams is so clearly the league-winning type of archetype that we profile every year, and yet he's still a 2-3 turn pick. This guy should be locked and loaded. If you can get access to him in the second round, if you can get access to him as your hero RB or if you want to build a superhero RB, this is the prime candidate to break out this year. Yeah, and I think it speaks volumes, too, that the godfather of utilization, Dwayne McFarland at PFF, is all the way in on Javante Williams. He tracked his utilization. He knows what the split looks like, and he knows what the split could look like. So um, we talk a lot about Javante Williams. We can move on to the next guy that we did not get right. And this was by far, we go from our biggest hit to our biggest miss, which was Debo Samuel. You guys know if you were following this channel, we were Brandon Ayuk guys. We did not believe in Debo Samuel. What led us to be wrong about Debo Samuel that we can take away? Yeah, with Debo Samuel, the takeaway that we put out in the last video was that the macro side of what Debo did is we didn't really understand or prioritize the role that he had in that offense enough. We were so focused on how effective he was at beating man coverage or, you know, he was injury prone the year before. You know, we just didn't really like that type of player that had so many uncertainty question marks in terms of his actual talent. But as we saw this year, the talent wasn't the issue. The injury was the thing clearly holding him back in 2020 and ultimately as i said player roles in their offense debo samuel was a hand pick basically if you could generate a kyle shanahan wide receiver in a lab debo samuel would be spit out and knowing that and knowing how a perfect scheme fit is going to affect a player's production is huge last year again as i mentioned we let the injuries we let the target competition we liked Ayuk, we liked Kittle, we liked all of these ancillary pieces on the Niners attack, but as we see ultimately, Debo Samuel was the primo number one option and smashed his ADP. The community, I feel, this year is a lot sharper with their ADP. There isn't, you know, a Debo Samuel archetype that is falling through the cracks, but the two profiles that I think are very comparable to the lesson that I outlined are Jalen Waddle and Michael Thomas. And for Jalen Waddle, I'll get into it, but the main comparable here to what Debo Samuel was last year is that is that he's a talented, versatile asset, now paired with, as I'll coin, the disciple of Kyle Shanahan with Mike McDaniel coming over. And he has a prime opportunity to blossom into that role the way Debo Samuel did. The biggest question mark for a guy like Jalen Waddle is the presence of Tyree Kill this offseason, but expect this offense to be concentrated. Those are the two main targets in this offense. Don't worry about, you know, ancillary names like Cedric Wilson, Mike Jasicki, any of the running backs chipping in because Waddle showed down the stretch. He is the type of player that can be a sustained wide receiver one. Wide receiver one in points per game down the stretch last year, a near 28% target share in week six to 18. So for those of you worrying about the presence of Tyreek Hill, always going to eat into Jalen Waddle, as we saw with Debo last year, 
that's just not the case when you're an elite talent. And the other one I kind of want to mention, it's an obvious one, but Michael Thomas, the upside is clearly there. As we know, the downside risk would be the injury concerns we've seen, but all positive accounts this offseason, Dr. Edmund Porras is not worried about that injury. So if we constantly get some positive news, I would be comfortable taking Michael Thomas in the third round. Yeah, I, I would be as well. I have him ranked as like a top 20 wide receiver because he is, you know, to the Debo point, he is the primary like target funnel of that offense. They operate that offense through a guy like Michael Thomas. I'll add two more names because I've brought up also that Debo Samuel also followed a same career trajectory that we see from Jerry Judy. Talented rookie. We were all excited about Judy as a rookie. We we're all excited about Debo as a rookie. Second year marred by injury. Judy gets, you know, a high ankle sprain in week one is, you know, not quite the same for the rest of the season. And then the third year breakout happens because the second year breakout was robbed by the injury. So that also kind of applies for Debo Samuel and the Jerry Judy parallel as well, which I've talked about before. And the other guy, and I can't believe I'm saying this because we never talk positively about this guy is Juju Smith-Schuster because Juju is actually in a position where he might be a way better schematic fit for what the Chiefs want to do. If they don't use him in like a 100% low A dot slot role, there's a chance that we do see a little bit of 2018-2019 Juju Smith-Schuster. And as we know with Juju, like if you're expecting him to consistently be man, that's not going to be your guy. But as we know, in a Patrick Mahomes offense, that offense is going to mostly see in zone coverage because quite frankly, if you try to match up man-to-man -man against Patrick Mahomes, you're going to be struggling. So ultimately, if Juju's seeing primary zone coverage this year, Juju Smith-Schuster is a zone-beating type of wide receiver, similar to Adebo Samuel was going into last year. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to raise him a little bit because, I mean, bias aside, there are, there is a clear bull case to be made here. Yeah, and we don't want to make that same mistake. And ironically, they're going almost exactly in the same area of the draft that they were last year. And we do have, you know, past example of Juju being a talented player. So um, we'll have to see kind of how that plays out. Again, I'm not completely against Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm not 100% in on him. He's more so a guy that I'm kind of lukewarm on now, uh, which is a big improvement from how we've been in yeah. previous years. So uh, the 2021 Mark Andrews case, this was a guy that, again, we were knocked out of the park. We loved Mark Andrews last year. He was my highest owned tight end on underdog of the early round guys. There was a few factors that led us to be high on Andrews. Number one, it was easy to bet on him because he was an efficient player, a talented young player who had already produced in fantasy. He had been a top four tight end in the previous two seasons. He was in a good offense with 10 plus touchdown upside. So that part was easy to identify. But the real bull case for Mark Andrews and how he became the tight end one this year is by following the breadcrumbs of the Ravens offense, becoming more pass heavy. And as you guys can see, Rich Rebar tweeted this out. Uh, snaps per season and routes run per season of Mark Andrews. This was a guy who was a part-time player, guy that wasn't running a ton of routes, and then he absolutely exploded from a usage perspective in 2021 once the Ravens went to more of a pass-heavy approach. And like I said, the breadcrumbs were there. They drafted a first-round wide receiver. They brought in Sammy Watkins. They hyped up Marquise Brown as finally being healthy. They uh, lost both of their running backs in the preseason. There was breadcrumbs to tell you that they were going to go more pass-heavy. And in my opinion, there's a clear one-to-one -one comparison this year with Dallas Goddard and the Philadelphia Eagles. Goddard led all tight ends in yards per route run last year. So we have a young, talented tight end, just like we did with Mark Andrews, finished as the tight end eight in points per game last year, already been a productive fantasy tight end on only 65% of his team's routes. He only ran 283 routes total last year. In 2020, Mark Andrews ran 350 routes. He jumped nearly 300 routes to 623 in 2021. Once the Ravens went more pass heavy, the Eagles have the same breadcrumb trails. They go out and get AJ Brown. They extended Dallas Goddard. They have a second year Devontae Smith. 
It looks like they're going to go more pass heavy, similar to what the Baltimore Ravens did last year. They also didn't address the running back position at all in the draft or in free agency. So there's a good chance that the 2021 uh, or the 2022 version of Mark Andrews is Dallas Goddard. Yeah, I mean, he's my highest owned tight end on underdog right now. So that'll tell you. But it's so funny because even from a situational perspective, Rashad Bateman and uh, Marquise Brown, AJ Brown and Devontae Smith. Mark Andrews, Dallas Goddard, in terms of size, speed, athletic profile, very, very similar. You mentioned their efficiencies. You mentioned their usage. Now we're seeing an opportunity for the Eagles, as we've said all offseason, to potentially go to maybe not a top five to ten passing offense in terms of volume, but as long as they're in the upper half of the league, that is a huge improvement for what we saw down the stretch last year, which by all indicators in the first seven games, we could see that passing offense really, really take an ascension. So with Dallas Goddard, eighth, ninth round opportunity cost, you're basically paying, you know, almost double digit round prices for a guy that, as you said, has the talent to be able to succeed. And with an improved snap share, with an improved opportunity to succeed, we could see it explode this year. So yeah, I'm all in on it. Mark Andrews, Dallas Goddard, very parallel in terms of their comparisons. Yeah, the last thing I'll say, which is pretty wild, targets per route run in 2020, Mark Andrews, 26.6%, top, top five in the NFL, but like I said, wasn't running a ton of routes. Last year, Dallas Goddard, 26.9%, top five in the NFL, even though he wasn't running a lot of routes. It's eerie how close yeah. this comparison is. So uh, we can move on from a guy that we got right last year to, again, another big miss of ours, who was probably our biggest miss at this position, in Joe Mixon. Yeah, so uh, with the Joe Mixon case, the reason why we were off of him last year and ultimately, you know, we lost on that argument is that we have to understand the difference between predictive and non-predictive injuries. And as a community, we've shown a huge bias, a huge recently bias to devaluing players that have cost us in recent years or got hurt in my playoffs and ruined my championship chances or I'm never drafting that guy again. All of these phrases you've probably heard a million times in your own home leagues, on Twitter, or from other fantasy football podcasts. But the thing that Mixon taught us is that offensive situation changing around you vastly impacts a running back ceiling. And for a lot of these guys, running backs, you can't predict injuries. Running backs, we think we can predict injuries every year. We think we can, you know, label a guy as injury prone just because of knickknack injuries like Mixon, like Eckler last year. But as we've seen, if there are minor ailments, that's not something that we can really predict going forward. And as we got to accept with the running back position, it's an injury prone position to begin with. So if you think a running back is safe because he doesn't project to get hurt, I'm sorry, you're no doctor. Nobody can predict whether a running backs can get hurt given the nature of the position. The main archetypes we can take away from this going into next year are Christian McCaffrey and Saquon Barkley in particular. And we've seen the elite league-winning level ceilings from these guys. Heck, if Christian McCaffrey's healthy, I would pretty much lock and load that he's the top-scoring running back in fantasy football for 2022. So the fact that you're getting a discount on him at the 102, 103, sometimes later in probably home leagues, I, I could see home leagues really fading this guy to the mid first round due to the narrative that we've seen. And as when Christian McCaffrey's on the field, there's no single asset in fantasy football more productive than what Christian McCaffrey's shown. Similar to Saquon Barkley. Saquon Barkley, we've seen the 20 plus PPR point per game ceiling. We've seen this guy absolutely explode in fantasy football. So the fact that he's currently a mid to late second round pick, maybe as we've said, maybe a third round pick in home leagues due to the injury 
concerns due to the, uh, you know, narratives that have been painted on him. But if you can get access to that, if you can get access to that level of ceiling in a position, as I said, is almost impossible to predict year to year in terms of injuries. You go ahead, you take the upside. Don't drop running back for floor. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, like you kind of mentioned there, Joe Mixon taught us two things. Number one, the, the predictive and non-predictive injuries. And number two, when the offense around a running back who's already been previously productive in fantasy gets significantly better like the Bengals offense did, we also have the upside touchdown case where they can become great running backs based on a lot of touchdowns. And I think a couple examples of that are Josh Jacobs, who's been a productive RB12 to 15 over the last three years of his career. His offense is suddenly the best it's ever been since he started getting there. I know he's there's a lot of negative pub around him right now because they've talked about like trading him and you know he got he played in the Hall of Fame game, which people don't like, but there's still a chance that this guy rushes in 15 touchdowns and at the very least could be like a Damian Harris from last year. And not necessarily that we want to draft like RB2s in like the fourth, fifth round, but if people fade Jacobs into the sixth, seventh round, I'm definitely cool with him at that point. And then Javante Williams and Cam Akers both have that kind of like the offense is really good around them. All they need is touchdowns type of argument as well. And I think you can definitely apply the Joe Mixon case from that. The one thing I will say, because some people might be like, well, aren't you guys doing the exact same thing with Dalvin Cook right now? You know that if Dalvin Cook is on the field, he's probably going to be good. Uh Major difference between Joe Mixon last year and Dalvin Cook this year is Dalvin Cook has a chronic shoulder injury that is actually predictive. So we can predict injuries when it comes to ACL tears and Achilles tears, things that are actually sticky and a chronic shoulder separation like what Dalvin Cook has, has been documented by doctors like Edwin Porras and Dr. Jesse Morris that we know it actually is predictive. So from an injury perspective, that's the difference between Joe Mixon and Dalvin Cook. And also we've seen Dalvin Cook fall off from like an efficiency standpoint as well. Yeah, we can't predict injuries necessarily, but we can, you know, weigh risk factors based on a certain number of things. And for Dalvin Cook, touches, you know, shoulder separation stuff. That's why we're kind of out on him. So another guy that was a, you know, late second round pick last year that he was actually my number one bust at the running back in general. He was my number one bust in fantasy. I did a video called, you know, Bush's top five bust last summer. He was number one on that list. And it was Clyde Edwards Hilaire from the Kansas City Chiefs. And the reason I was out on Clyde Edwards Hilaire, number one, is that I just didn't think he was that good of a player, which is kind of important in fantasy football. People underrate that aspect a little bit, especially when you're in such a good situation like uh, Clyde Edwards Hilaire was in last year. The elite workload and upside that he possessed, according to most you know players, fantasy analysts, a lot of people like to paint him as a top five ceiling running back because he played for the Kansas City Chiefs. And the arguments that they would point to is like, well, the Kansas City starting running back has finished as a top five running back and like, 14 in the last 18 years or whatever the, the argument, the Andy Reid thing that people did, but most relied on lazy takes of like, oh, he's the Chiefs running back, but we didn't actually see him command any of the important touches in the offense. In fact, he actually lost the important touches of the offense as a rookie. So the goal line work, the receiving work, long down and distance, two minute drill. We didn't think he was going to get any of this coming into the season. And that shit's kind of important. Even though you play for the Kansas City Chiefs, if you're up between the 20s, no goal line and no receiving work running back, you're probably not going to be that high of a ceiling in fantasy. And the funny thing is that once Clyde Edwards Hilaire went down, Darrell Williams got the workload that all of us wanted for Clyde Edwards Hilaire. So because he was a mediocre player, because you know they didn't trust him in certain situations, he never got the workload that people wanted to paint him. I do think it was as simple as saying Clyde Edwards Hilaire is not the talent that they thought they drafted. And that's why he never became the running back that people expected him to be. The 2022 archetype for this, there doesn't really exist uh, a one-to-one direct example of like what I would consider like a bad running back going in the first you know, two to three rounds. The closest thing I can think of is that David Montgomery is going pretty high still because we know that his scoring opportunities might be limited in a bad offense. 
we're now hearing that Khalil Herbert might eat into his touches from a receiving standpoint and from a goal line work standpoint. So it begs the question, similar to Clyde edwards Hilaire last year, what's his path to an elite, you know, upside or a high upside player? Because he's not getting the workhorse touches that he was getting in previous years, and he also plays in a bad offense. So what really is the ceiling with David Montgomery? That's like the closest thing that I can think of as, as a CEH case. But for the most part, there isn't one this year. Yeah, I agree with that point. I mean, there's no running back picked, you know, in the top 25 this year that we're having those question marks in terms of talent, in terms of usage. Just, you know, David Montgomery. We've seen this guy be, you know, a borderline RB1, safe, if you will, type of player in the past. But as you kind of mentioned, Clue Herbert was the more efficient player last year. This Bears offense is going to suck. And if Herbert's eating into that workload, as I kind of mentioned, with Montgomery, then, like, you said it. What is the ceiling with a guy like David Montgomery? Again, not a one-to-one comparison, different opportunity cost, but relatively similar in terms of their projected archetype going into the year. But let's go on to the next player, a player that I was wrong about, a player that plays for the team that was listed behind me. You guys can see all those Cowboys jerseys, Ezekiel Elliott. And the takeaway that we got from this is that the age and touch apex for a running back, even highly productive ones, is real. And with Zeke, he was viewed as having all the peripherals we could have possibly wanted going into fantasy football last year. Perennial top five finisher at the position. Fantastic projected offense. Ample pass receiving work. We've seen this guy, you know, go over 50, 60, 70 targets in the past and has high touchdown upside. But as we kind of learn, running backs become inherently less efficient and overall less useful as they hit certain thresholds of touches and grow increasingly in lost fantasy points in each bundle that they get. So you guys can see the RB ones in the past decade or so you actually did this study. So I'll let you explain the study, the RB ones in the past decade or so when they hit their fall off and ultimately what the averages were for a lot of these guys, once they fell off. Yeah. Like they were losing 6.4 PPR points per game on their average fall off. And as EQ Elliott is included in this sample size, because his biggest fall off came after 2020 when Prescott got hurt and Ezekiel Elliott started to suffer some injuries and wasn't the same player. And their age entering that fall off was about 27 years old, 1100 career touches. And in 2020, Ezekiel Elliott had 1350 career touches. We are now two years since removed from 2020. He has even more touches under his belt. He has almost 2000 under his belt at this point. So we were, we should have been able to see this coming. And the crazy thing too, is that if this can happen to Ezekiel Elliott, this, we really should be saying this can happen to anybody. Because if you look at Ezekiel Elliott's injury history from 2016 to 2020, this guy didn't have a scratch on him. Didn't miss a practice. Didn't miss a game. Like was the model of injury proof, like durability at the running back position. And once he got to that age touch apex, it was, you know, 2020, he had a calf contusion, 2021, partial PCL tear, bruised ribs later in the season as well. So he started to feel that, you know, touches that he has under his belt. And if we can say that for Ezekiel Elliott, like I said, the one of the most durable running backs of the last 10 years, it can really happen to anybody. Yeah, with Ezekiel Elliott, a lot of people are going to point to, oh, well, at the beginning of the, the season, he was looking good. You know, he could have been a potential RB1. But that is the point of this study is that, Older running backs are more susceptible to wear and tear, like we saw with Zico last year. He had, you know, not a scratch, as you said, in the first few years of his career. Last year, once he tore that PCL, it's going to happen as an older running back. You're going to have these injuries. And the one that, like, is so obvious to me that looks, in terms of an efficiency basis, like 2019, 2020, Ezekiel Elliott did, was Dalvin Cook. 
This past year's Dalvin Cook, in terms of his efficiency fall off from 2020 to 2021, is eerily similar to what we saw from Ezekiel Elliott from 2019 to 2020. Only, as we knew, with Ezekiel Elliott, you mentioned the durability. With Dalvin Cook, you don't even get that you know preconceived um, information going into the year. With Dalvin Cook, betting on a player who was inherently less efficient last year, who was getting a year older, and as you mentioned, nearing that touch and age apex at the running back position. You guys can see the graph on the screen, but Dalvin Cook, 1,200 career touches, over 1,000 career carries, and nearing 27 years old. All of the risks in this profile aren't baked into his ADP right now. He's currently going off the board as a first-round fantasy football pick, coming off a bad season, coming off an inherently less efficient season on the back of his offensive peripherals with the Minnesota Vikings. This is almost exactly the blueprint people were doing when they were taking Ezekiel in the first round just last year. Right. And Danny knows this because he made this mistake. He was taking Ezekiel Elliott in the top five. And the weird thing about these, these, uh, the two that we're about to talk about, the one that we're talking about now is you were on Ezekiel Elliott. I was off of him. And the next one that we're going to talk about, I was on and you were off. So we both had our own mistakes that were made here. Dalvin cook fell off 8.2 fantasy points per game last year. Yes, yep. he was awesome in 2020. So it, it's it obviously it's gonna be a big number. He was 24.1 points per game, and he was still a top 10 running back in points per game last year with 15.9. But the point is, we're we're projecting forward, right? He fell off 8.2 points per game last year. He still has the shoulder con- uh, uh, separation concerns. Yeah, the offense is gonna be good. But the same case we had for Ezekiel Elliott was that the offense is gonna be good. He could punch in a lot of touchdowns. We're worried about the efficiency. We're worried about the health, which is why we're off of his, uh, of Dalvin Cook this year. So at his price, I am okay with him in like the mid-second round or something like that, but I'm not spending a first-round pick on the dude. Yeah, that's fair because with Dalvin Cook, I mean, he's a first-round pick. So if he's ever available in the mid-second round, maybe you make the decision point then. But realistically, I feel like his ceiling is severely getting overblown by his 2019 and 2020 production. I've seen multiple people say he's a dark horse to finish as the RB one, which as an inherently less efficient player last year, going into his age 27 season with the fall off that he saw in the age and touch workload that he's seen. I don't see that in the range of outcomes. Yeah, exactly. So, um, we can move off of the guy that you made the mistake on early in the first round last year to the running back NFC East running back that I made the mistake on early in the first round last year, which was Saquon Barkley. And this one's tough, man, because I'm struggling with this, this, this heuristic, this principle this year, because injury optimism is dangerous. And we got, I, or I got screwed by this last year because I bought into Saquon Barkley, the injury optimism. And this heuristic is one that I'm personally battling with, with guys like Cam Akers and JK Dobbins. And I made this mistake more so than you. You were a lot more hesitant on Barkley than I was. I was ready to take him, you know, 104, 105 in drafts. And I have to be consistent. I thought Barkley could be the CMC level talent to overcome the fact that he played for a bad offense with a bad line and a bad quarterback. But doing that off of a major injury probably wasn't smart, especially when he didn't play in the preseason. We didn't know if he was going to be ready for week one. And we kind of got screwed a little bit on the Saquon Barkley thing because he, you know, rolled his ankle in like week four after he was looked like he was coming back. So maybe I'm being a little bit overly uh, negative about the Saquon Barkley case. But at the same time, we do have to wonder if this applies to guys like J.K. Dobbins and Cam Akers because we have two running backs coming off of major injuries. J.K. Dobbins coming off a compound ACL tear. Sounds like there was meniscal damage as well. And we had Cam Akers coming off of an Achilles tear. But here's why we can, I'm ready to potentially make the same mistake again that I made on Saquon Barkley. Number one is cost. These guys are not the same price that Saquon Barkley was. Barkley was a high pick, a top five 
top eight pick in fantasy drafts. Dobbins is like a fifth, sixth round pick, maybe a fourth round pick now that he's off the pup list. Cam Akers consistently available in the third, fourth round as well. So the risk is more so baked into it with these guys. But from a medical perspective as well, these guys also have good peripherals, just like Saquon Barkley did. Factors like high draft capital running backs. They were both second round picks. They're both elite athletes too, both like 90 plus percentile math bomb scores when they tested. They both had a lot of time to recover. And in fact, Cam Akers already returned from this injury five and a half months after the surgery. And both guys suffered their injuries in the preseason. So they have at least 12 months to recover. And both guys are making good progress right now too. We're, we're seeing the checkpoints start to get hit. J.K. Dobbins is off the pup list. Cam Akers sounds like he doesn't have any injury concerns really right now. If they're both playing in the preseason, if they're both ready to go for week one, I'm ready to make this mistake again, assuming the price stays similar. If they get to a point where their price is out of control and you know Cam Akers is a late first round pick and J.K. Dobbins like a late second round pick or something, which I don't think will ever happen, but if it did, I would be out on them at that point. But at the price that they're going right now, I'm okay making this mistake again if it's warranted. Yeah, no, I I agree with this as well. And I, with Saquon Barkley, I mean, we mentioned this as a, as a mistake, but it was a mistake in terms of results oriented. I mean, the process was there. We saw, you know, as as I went through in the contextualized game log, that in weeks two to four, once we saw a fully healthy, fully ready to go Saquon Barkley prior to that fluke ankle injury against my Dallas Cowboys, he was getting all the opportunity, twenty one opportunities or so per game, and was scoring points at a Saquon Barkley level rate. So even though, you know, we're labeling this as an L or one that didn't work out for us, like ultimately here going into next year, there's not too much we can fully look into. Only I'll say, as you kind of mentioned, if the injury concerns are warranted, if there's genuine concern over potential workload or potential readiness to get back, that's the thing we could take away. So if we hear negative reports for JK Dobbins, negative reports for Cam Akers, maybe, you know, they're, they're, process getting stalled or it's week three in the preseason in the off season. And we're not sure exactly what their workload is going to be going into week one, week two, week three. That's the hesitance that we would need. But if everything's positive, if everything's going from here on out, I'm fine. As you mentioned, making this mistake again. Right. And specifically with acres, nobody's mentioned shit about his injury since it happened. Like no, we've never heard like, uh, you know, Rams running back cam acres is like not looking good in camp, still recovering from the Achilles. Like we haven't heard anything. They haven't even mentioned that the fact that he tore his Achilles last year, it's just completely out of sight, out of mind. So for him, I'm less likely to, to waver on my stance because he already came back from the injury. But with Dobbins specifically, if we hear negative reports, setbacks, doesn't play in the preseason, could be ready for week one, stuff like that. Then I'm going to, uh, you know, change my tune a little bit. But again, the cost is pretty friendly for both of these guys and the upside cases are definitely there. So um, another guy that we got, we, we could say we got this right. We didn't know how <laughs> right we were going to be, but we did technically get this right with Cooper cup. Yeah. With Cooper cup, the, the lesson we learned is valuing the number one target and high scoring offenses is usually a recipe for scoring a lot of fantasy points. And with cup, you know, we viewed him as this safe, but lacking a truly league winning ceiling by what we considered and perceived his talent level to be despite, you know, two years prior posting a 134 target near 1200 yard double digit touchdown season with Goff, the two players that really fit this archetype towards potentially being, I'm not going to say this year's Cooper cup, but this year's, you know, wide receiver one that, you know, on a high powered offense that ultimately provided a lot more in terms of what they did on the field versus their actual cost of acquisition. The two guys for me, or Jerry Judy and Michael Pittman. I'll let you take it away with, with Michael Pittman after I talk about Judy. But with Jerry Judy, 
it's very similar in the fact that with Cooper Cup last year, you know, people were making the case for Robert Woods. People didn't know, you know, what the split was between those guys. But ultimately, we trusted and we put our stance, we put our flag on Cooper Cup. The guy that we're putting for Denver is going to be Jerry Judy in terms of whether he or Cortland Sutton could be that number one target in a Russell Wilson-led offense. With Jerry Judy, you mentioned it with uh, when we talked about Debo Samuel, but I think people are kind of underestimating Judy due to the fact that he did have that injury last year. He did miss a big portion of the season last year. But when he was on the field, he was the one that was alphaing uh, Cortland Sutton. He was the one that was taking a lot of the production away from Cortland Sutton. I talked about it in the contextualized game log, but Cortland Sutton literally halved his fantasy points per game when Jerry Judy was on the field and only commanded a 13.5% target share when Jerry Judy was on the field. So if I'm going to bet on one weapon and a Russell Wilson led offense to take that leap, I'm going to take the 23 year old three or third year breakout candidate over a guy like Cortland Sutton. So ultimately if Jerry Judy can stay healthy this year, I think not only can he beat his ADP right now, currently a fringe top 20 type of wide receiver selected. I think he's got the opportunity to smash his ADP. Yeah, and on the Cooper Cup point, this is really interesting. And and a reason why you guys should be checking out Danny's contextualized game logs if you're not already doing this, because if you go back to 2018, when Cooper Cup was off to that fire start before he tore his ACL, in the six fully healthy games he played, he averaged 21 points per game. So he had the ceiling if you looked hard enough. And it coincidentally coincided with the best season of Jared Goff's career. So once he had that great quarterback play, he was able to prove that. Unfortunately, he got injured, so we didn't get to see it over the, the whole sustained period of the season. But in that sample, if you take the context into, into account of he had his best quarterback play of his career, when the game, if you remove the games where he left early in, he was a elite league-winning wide receiver. And we didn't really necessarily see that with Cooper Cup. We wanted him over Robert Woods, which we were right about, and a lot of people had Woods over Cup. It was actually the consensus of how people were drafting. But uh, Cooper Cup was the guy that we wanted because we thought the touchdown upside could be a little bit higher. But anyways, Michael Pittman also kind of has this draw to him because he's a young wide receiver. He could still take a step forward in his career. And we saw that his peripherals are off the charts, right? He is the clear number one alpha target in his offense. He has the ability, if he's a good enough player, to command like a 30% target share for an offense with a quarterback that's fed his number one wide receiver, like we talked about with Stafford. In the past, we've seen Julio Jones get peppered with targets with Matt Ryan. And he has the ability to score a lot of touchdowns, and it should be what we consider a good offense as well. The only real question mark you could have about their offense is the fact that they might not be the most pass-heavy unit in the league. Yeah, no, exactly. With Michael Pittman, uh, there's also like a preconceived notion that, oh, he doesn't have the talent to enter that top five of the of the wide receiver position. But as we saw with Cooper Cup, if you have touchdown upside and if you have the ability to command targets like we saw from Michael Pittman in your 26% target share player this past year, I don't really care. Yeah, preconceived notion. Maybe he's not the talent of a guy like Justin Jefferson, but if he's getting the fantasy production, I don't really care. Yeah, and again, we are talking about fantasy points instead of uh, yeah. you know actual real-life player. And we know from Matt Harmon that Michael Pittman could be you know the next Allen Robinson or the next exactly. you know, great wide receiver uh, if he takes another step in year three of his career. So yeah, definitely makes some sense. Do we think there's going to be a this year's Cooper Cup from like no. a standpoint probably not but could there be a fourth round wide receiver that ends up being a top five receiver or a top six wide receiver definitely i think either of these guys that we kind of talked about definitely paint the case for that as well so we can move on to another thing that we definitely got right these were two of my highest exposed running backs on underdog last year leonard fournette and james connor what were we right about with these guys with these guys it was point blank and it was simple and it went over our heads at the time but targeting running backs with lead back potential on high powered offenses is genuinely a smart move. I mean, it sounds very, very obvious to say now, 
But it, it was smack right in front of us last year with James Conner and with Leonard Fournette. Unproven starters in front of them. Ronald Jones never really garnered the trust of that Tampa Bay coaching staff. You would know that firsthand. And with Arizona, as much as we love the explosion and the you know smooth playing style of Chase Edmonds, he was never going to be a full-fledged goal line back like James Conner could have been. So with both of them, their paths to returning on value, their paths to hitting their ceiling were so clear and obvious that that's the archetype you want to go for and you want to swing for when you're in a hero RB, when you're in a zero RB, when you're in a, you know, a, a fragile RB at the top type of um, drafting strategy. These archetypes that can not only you know provide top 24 level basis to the running back position if they hit, but could potentially be top 10 running backs like Fournette and Connor were. For both of these guys, as we kind of said, top 10 running backs in fantasy land. Both provided their drafters with a huge advantage at their RB2 position compared to the opportunity costs that a lot of the other managers in their league were spending on their running backs, specifically in the dead zone. Could you imagine last year a team owner drafting Mike Davis in the fifth round and then another person drafting Leonard Fournette in the ninth round? Hmm, I wonder which worked out better. But this year, the two main players that really spoke out to me towards potentially having the Fournette and Connor cases were James Cook and Ramondre Stevenson. Oddly enough, both in the same uh, division. But with both of these guys, they represent clear, clear upside cases to not only be beating their ADP, but potentially being RB1s. For Cook, let's get into it. Great offense, high draft capital rookie, second round pick by the Buffalo Bills with a path to ample wider, or with a path to ample receiving work in what should be one of the top five projected offenses in the entire NFL. If there's ever going to be a new Austin Eckler or player that can develop into the next Austin Eckler, James Cook has all of those peripherals to be that next guy in line. And realistically with Buffalo, we expect this team to throw the ball all over the yard, maybe, you know, 650 upwards of close to 700 times this upcoming year. Outside of Stefan Diggs, there's no established or target hierarchy for the Buffalo Bills. Are we really shocked if James Cook as a rookie goes out this upcoming year proves his worth as a receiving back and maybe sees upwards of 80, 90 targets, even as a rookie. Yes, that's lofty expectations, but with the expected volume we see for Buffalo, it's fully within that range of outcomes. So taking a stab on this type of profile, even if you're not fully believing in the talent of cook, taking a stab on this profile in round nine, round 10, round 11 is how you get access to league winners every single year. The same thing with Rondé Stevenson. We saw the upside he flashed as a rookie when he was the main back for the Patriots. And he has a much easier projection towards top 12 to 15 production than Damon Harris does. Reason being in those limited spurts, we saw Ramondre own this backfield. He actually garnered some receiving work something that Damian Harris simply could not do. So if I'm going to take one Patriots running back, I'm going to take the one with the archetype to potentially not only return on value, but smash. Again, a very similar case to Connor or uh, to Fournette versus uh, Ronald Jones last year, where we knew inherently going into the year, Ronald Jones was not going to get receiving work, but we saw in limited spurts the year before that Leonard Fournette can be a plus receiver for the Bucks. Yeah, that's that's a perfect one-to-one -one comparison. There's other guys too, obviously, in this range. If you want to look at like handcuffs like Melvin Gordon, 
Um, you know, Rashad White, Daryl Henderson, Alex Madison all have this kind of upside as well, but they would need an injury. James Cook and Ramondre Stevenson could win this backfield without an injury. So that's kind of the distinction between because for like even though James Conner did have Chase Edmonds suffer an injury, he was still an RB1 before Chase Edmonds got hurt. So even though the the real bull came, came once Chase Edmonds was out, he was still paying off big time at his ADP before that happened. So obviously the case is very simple for like Gordon and Henderson and Madison and those guys, because if the guy in front of them gets injured, they're gonna be huge you know, returners on value, but we're talking about guys specifically that didn't need an injury for that to happen. And Connor and Fournette definitely proved that last year. So the final thing that we're going to talk about in this video is the elite quarterback case, because um, something that I was very in on last year, you were very in on last year. And I talked about it last year in the, what makes a league winning quarterback video, where I broke down what my quarterback strategy was, is that I thought the high end quarterbacks, the guys that were being drafted in the top 10 to 12 of ADP, we're all going to finish as highly rated quarterbacks because they all had very clean projections. We had Konami code guys like Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray and Jalen Hurts, guys that could run the ball that would finish highly because of that. We had elite upside passing options like Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert and Tom Brady and Dak Prescott. And all those guys finished highly because as a market, we're getting very smart at predicting which quarterbacks will be the best. And in fact, every one of the top 12 quarterbacks in points per game last year was drafted inside the top 15 quarterbacks of overall ADP. The lowest drafted quarterback was Kirk Cousins. So the, we got good at predicting these quarterback, uh, you know, guys that are going to be the best quarterbacks in fantasy. And the late round quarterback is slowly dying as a result because we're, we're as soon as we have a late round quarterback potential guy like Trey Lance this year, we are inherently just like ready to draft him high because we know he has that elite ceiling. So for us, the lesson that we took away is that, you know, drafting quarterbacks early is a more viable strategy than it's ever been. And this year, it's going to be how I handle the quarterback position because my favorite tier of quarterbacks this year in terms of like ADP is the Lamar Jackson, Kyla Murray, Jalen Hurts tier because of the elite like six quarterbacks, they go the latest. If Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, and Josh Allen were going the latest of those three, then I would like those guys the most. It's simply more of who costs the least of those elite options. And if I miss out on those guys, I still like the Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, Matthew Stafford, you know, whatever quarterback you like in that area, Russell Wilson, Trey Lance because they all have high ceilings. So the elite quarterback case that we learned last year was effective is also, I, I think, going to prove to be effective this year. Yeah, it, I mean, it's so easy for me to actually, when we look at the landscape, you guys can see the ADP on the screen or if you haven't already, but out of all of these top 12 guys, I mean, they all have such safe projections, such upside projections to continue what they have in terms of why we like them going into this year. With those top six guys, as you kind of mentioned, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, and Trey Lance all have that case where they're going to provide with their arms, but ultimately going to give you, you know, 600 upwards of 600 rushing yards, contributing on the team's goal line from the rushing pass, uh, rushing perspective. With guys like Herbert, Mahomes, uh, Burrow, Wilson, Brady, Prescott, Stafford, etc., we know that they're going to get there on the back of elite passing usage and highly efficient passing upside with you know, upwards of 35, 40 touchdowns in the range of outcomes passing. So those top 12 quarterbacks are so seemingly priced accordingly this year that it's pretty scary how efficient they are priced because outside of those guys, I mean, the only guy that you can really, or the only couple guys you could really make the case for entering the top 12, in my opinion, are probably Carr and Cousins. Like outside of that, and like maybe Justin Fields, if he runs a ton maybe, too, yes. or Zach Wilson, if he takes a huge passing step. Yeah, like it's 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 pretty remarkable when you look at the and then obviously Deshaun Watson on points per game basis, but it's pretty remarkable when you look at it how efficiently we price them. Like there's no glaring, you know, Lamar Jackson from a few years ago or 
Jalen, even like Jalen Hurts from last year, like we grew so much smarter, even from last year. Jalen Hurts was already priced like in the top 10 last year. We learned from that. And now Trey Lance is quite literally priced higher than Joe Burrow currently. So, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And the the awesome thing about this is that people still believe in late round quarterbacks. So you can still get a discount on potentially high upside guys. So I'm not saying like if these guys were all drafted inside the top 50 overall picks that I'd be in on an early quarterback. I'm saying it's good to be in on early quarterbacks because most people believe that being in on early quarterbacks is a bad thing because of the age old narrative. Oh, the quarterback four doesn't score that many more points than like the quarterback 15, which is probably true to some degree. But at the same time, we got guys like, you know, Joe Burrow and Tom Brady and Dak Prescott going in like the ninth, 10th round of your fantasy draft that have legitimate like 24, 25 point per game type of upside, which you're not going to get at any other position at that point in the draft. And in fact, you're going to probably be lucky to get maybe 15 point per game upside at running back or wide receiver in the ninth, 10th round of your draft. So if you can get, I know it's you know, quarterback positions, easy to fill on the waivers and stuff like that. But that ceiling is not easy to fill. We had the, I can pull up the Hayden Winks tweet right now. Of all the quarterbacks that had 30 plus point per game um, or point outings in a single fantasy game, all those quarterbacks were highly drafted. The weekly ceiling that you get out of these elite quarterbacks is different than anybody that you can stream. You might be able to scrape together 15, you know, 18 points on uh, a waiver wire Davis Mills or Tua Tungavailoa or something, but you're not going to get the high ceiling that you can get out of these guys on a weekly basis. And it's so funny because you, some of you are going to enter your home league draft. Some of you are going to, you know, watch a draft stream and there's just going to be uh, somebody snarking and feeling so good because they punted quarterback till round 13 and they got Tua Tungavailoa as their starting quarterback. And they're going to be like, well, I filled up all the more valuable positions. All I need is 18 points per game from Tua. And it's like, that's just such an outdated way of thinking. Draft the guys with elite ceilings. Draft the guys that can put up the most fantasy points for your team. And even if they're at the quarterback position, all of them are priced where you're not paying. You know, pe people made the late round quarterback theory when at the beginning of fantasy football, or not even at the beginning, but even 10 years ago in fantasy football, we saw quarterbacks like Brady and Manning and those guys going in the second, third round consistently. Now that the quarterback market is so deflated to the point where a guy like Josh Allen, who not only has the potential to be the quarterback one again and should be the quarterback one again, but the potential to break fantasy football, his ADP is 31 and a half. If he had a similar season to what he did last year in like 2012, this would be a top 15 overall pick. Yeah, exactly. Like that type of, like he has like a 30 point per game type of season, which would, and again, it doesn't matter how you get there. Your goal on a weekly basis in fantasy football is to beat the opponent that you have. So for the most part, a lot of mumbo jumbo about, of, uh, about the quarterback position. You guys know how we feel about it. I'm going to drop a video later this week talking about my number one draft strategy for all the positions. So basically going to do an entire recap of the league winning running back quarterback tight end and wide receiver videos about my strategy addressing those positions. And I'll break down more of that quarterback stuff in that video. So if you guys enjoyed this video at any point, as always go down to the bottom, leave a like subscribe to the channel. If you're new comment, whatever you uh, you know want down below your recap of what you learned. If you learned a big lesson last year, feel free to share it with us. We definitely uh, like engaging with you guys down there. If you guys are interested in, you know, we made a reference to the like, contextualized game logs. If you want to check out our Patreon, we got contextualized game logs. We got databases. We got strength, the schedule stuff that I talked about in previous weeks. Um, all that kind of stuff is on our Patreon. You also get first dibs on Dynasty Decisions, access to our Dynasty and Redraft Rankings Manifesto. Tons of content over there. Link is down below. Check out Underdog Fantasy as well to make sure that you can get some skin in the game ahead of your home league drafts. If you guys want to sharpen up, get ready. 
and get the best practice that you possibly can. Part of the reason that trophy behind me has not moved in two years is because I do a shit ton of underdog drafts every year and I'm overprepared happens for my home league draft. I know exactly where players should be going. And when the board falls certain ways, I'm, I'm ready. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I want that for you guys as well. And you can use promo code FSE at sign up and first deposit for 100% back on whatever you put in. So if you put in 10 bucks, you get 20. And as a free thank you from us here at FSE, you'll get our redraft and dynasty rankings manifestos totally for free. So you get a lot of practice for your home leagues. You get hundred percent back from underdog fantasy and you get our rankings for free. You will not find a better deal than that anywhere on YouTube or anywhere on the internet. So with that being said, peace out. We'll talk to you soon.